Hello and welcome to Talking You Retina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. You Retina, I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leading experts from the world of retina and beyond. We'll also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. In this episode, we're going to be exploring new data from the Phase 3 Derby and Oaks trials announced at the latest Uretina meeting into geographic atrophy. And I'm delighted to welcome back our chair, Professor Frank Holtz from the University of Bonn. He's joined by Professor Sandrine Zweifel from University Hospital Zurich in Switzerland and Professor Adnan Tufail from Moorfield Eye Hospital in London. Frank, as I say, lovely to have you back on the podcast. Looking forward to an interesting discussion. Over to you. Yes, Jonathan, thank you very much. And it's great to have on board tonight uh, Sondre Zweifel from Zurich, from the University Eye Hospital in Switzerland, and also Adnan Tufail from Moorfields Eye Hospital in the UK, in, in London. So that's a fantastic faculty for this podcast. And our topic tonight is to discuss the very recent data on two phase three trials called the Derby and Oaks trial, which actually addressed both efficacy and safety of a complement inhibiting drug, a C3 inhibitor called Pexatecoplan. And the data, the 24 months data of these two trials were actually reported just recently a few weeks ago at the Hamburg Uretina meeting. So perhaps Adnan, if I may ask you to kick off the discussion. So after all these years, over 15 years now of successful anti-VEGF treatment, how big do you see the unmet need of treating this late stage atrophic manifestation subphenotype of AMD? Um, there is an enormous need. Uh, um, initially, we have realized the burden of primary geographic atrophy. So patients who don't have neovascular AMD and is estimated to be about 5 million and with an aging population in Europe, the burden will increase. We are now seeing the survivors of our anti-VEGF therapy where we've prevented medium-term visual loss from fibrosis and now realizing they're starting to lose vision, as we've seen from studies such as 7up and others, from geographic atrophy. So the burden will increase and the need is enormous. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Sandrine. I know you have an extremely busy clinic in, in Zurich. So how do patients approach you with this disease manifestation of age-related macular disease? What are they asking? Of course, until now they're is uh, no approved uh, treatment available for all these patients who have uh, advanced dry aggregated macular degeneration. I mean, the, let's say the people in Zurich, um, the patients, they are already aware, they heard about that there might be uh, a treatment available soon. So they are already approaching us, asking if there is like anything they actually can do to prevent uh, further progression. And that's why I think even if what we have so far from this phase three and of course also phase two clinical trials, I mean, it's not that we can say this will be a drug which will change everything, but at least let's say there is a little bit hope. We see that there is a reduction in the progression rate. Uh, we don't have evidence uh, that it will have an, an functional improvement, but we have some, let's say, some correlate that there will be photoreceptor survival. When we look, for example, at some sub-analysis using micropyrimetry, 
So I think we will have a quite huge group of um, patients with uh, a GA who are actually dying for for having like anything they can do because doing nothing, we know that there is progression and they will lose uh, vision over uh, dependent on, on, on the location, of course, and the, on the type, on the subtype of geographic atrophy they have. Um, they have a little bit of different GA progression rate, but we know all of them have actually a high risk that they will lose vision over time. Thank you so much, Sandrine, for this thoughtful comment and, and view. So in Durban Oaks, the primary endpoint was changing total area of geographic atrophy lesions based on fundus autofluorescence imaging. So from basically all the anti-VEGF studies in all the different indications, best corrected visual acuity was the primary endpoint. Adnan, how do you see this structural endpoint fit to address the question of efficacy? So we know from excellent natural history studies from numerous groups, including yours, Frank, that once you've got primary geographic atrophy, the lesions expand with a variable rate, but nevertheless continue to expand. We know from histopathologic work, stretching back many decades and more recently with Christine Kirschu and others' work, we know that in the area of geographic atrophy, there is loss of RPE cells, chorocapillaris, and photoreceptors. And if you do uh, correlates with function, such as microprimetry, there is decreased function in those areas. So therefore, with an area of an enlarging area of geographic atrophy that you can measure on a structural measurement such as autofluorescence, but also in now using OCT, onfas OCT, as a, another way of looking at the area of GA or complete uh, RPE and outer retinal atrophy, which is the OCT correlate of geographic atrophy, that that will be a proxy for loss of function. And a bit like glaucoma, where you have an enlargement of visual field loss, it therefore is a reasonable deduction that an enlargement of GA as measured structurally correlates with function. As that enlargement hits the fovea, the area of high contrast central visual acuity, then there is a more rapid drop over a few years from Janet Sunis's work and others of high contrast central visual acuity. So it is a good proxy marker for visual function. Thank you. And then obviously it's objective and very robust measurements with high repeatability. So some advantages over psychophysical testing that would you see like that, Adnan? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the problems with geographic atrophy is the disease starts four to six degrees from the fovea. So patients have dysfunction such as reading speed abnormalities uh, before high contrast central visual acuity drops. Now, you could determine that by microperimetry, but that's a very burdensome test for patients and is time-consuming in a busy clinic when we hopefully get these treatments to deploy in our patients. And there are enough good studies now to correlate geographic atrophy as a proxy for dysfunction in that area as measured by microperimetry and other tests. So it is a very good measure for local dysfunction but not necessarily for high contrast central visual acuity, but is lost late, very late in the disease process after the fovea has been involved 
well after the patient has reading dysfunction. So Ethan, you were alluding to the fact when hitting the fovea, this is when it becomes dismal for the affected patient. So we want to save and protect this relatively resilient tissue as long as we possibly could. Sontrin, you mentioned the data showed um, slowing of the enlargement rates of atrophy. And how would this possibly translate into how you would select your patients to whom you would offer that treatment? What would be, so to speak, the best case scenario for your GA patients walking in tomorrow? So uh, we know from, from the data so far that there seems to be a greater effect of the treatment on patients who have extra foveal lesions. So these are the patients who do not have yet center involvement. They seem to have like a better prognosis in means of a lower um, or a greater reduction of uh, GA lesion rate compared to patients who already have a center involvement. The, the Oaks and, and Derby phase three trials, they were quite big studies. So they, they had like 1,200 uh, participants. And of course, we don't have so far like all the structural and imaging uh, dating available. So when we look at this um, growth rate, uh, at this progression rate, we compare that to the progression rate to the sham control, so to the patients who did not get the treatment. But of course, for like the individual patients, there might be additional risk factors. So we, for example, know that patients who have structural markers like hyper-effective foci seem to be at higher risk for progression to GA. So I think we have still a lot of data available and, and maybe with like further analysis, we even get uh, more information which patients should be the first or which patients will profit the most from this treatment. Thank you, Sandrine. So taking a deeper dive in the data will obviously help us more to select the proper patients. Adnan, question to you. So in Derby and Oaks, the treatment arms encompassed either monthly treatment or every other month's treatment compared to SHAM. SHAM obviously was not a SHAM injection, but another SHAM procedure, if you will. But how do you see this approach? Now, everything was filed for FDA for approval. EMA will be coming next year. If it was approved, what do you like to see in the label, given the monthly or every other month's treatment? And how do you see this fit for the clinical routine in these patients? So I think that's a, an excellent question. Obviously, the once you initiate on this treatment is likely to be very long term. And therefore, a two monthly versus a monthly would be attractive from a patient burden perspective. We know from the 24 month data, that the monthly had a greater reduction in GA lesion expansion than the two monthly by about 4% in Oaks and slightly less in Derby. So there was some superiority in the monthly over the two monthly and in Oaks that delta increased over time marginally. Now there could be a scenario where you have a patient that's lost vision in one eye from GA 
that has a parafoveal or close to center lesion in the other eye, we're really limiting the expansion even by a modest amount of the benefit over the monthly versus two monthly may be enough to keep the patient seeing for their lifetime. Therefore, from my, my preferred route would be to have both options for the patient, that um, in certain scenarios, as Sandrine has already mentioned, when we get further granularity of which subgroups may progress quicker um, and which locations may um, lead to visual loss in a patient's lifetime, those patients may be, you may advocate for monthly, and they also, the patients themselves may be more motivated to have monthly injections. Whereas I can see the patients with reasonably well extravagal lesions, that where you would model out that they are likely not to hit the fovea for a number of years, two monthly may be a more sustainable option. So I think I would be an advocate both to be on the label. It may be that patients and payers may guide some of the choices in the future. So, so Adnan, thank you for these thoughtful comments. So, monthly, every other month, in the wet AMD space, we are used to individualized treatment, treat and extend PIN according to disease activity. Do you see any room for individualized treatment in the GA space with complement inhibitors? Um, I think the only individualization would be monthly versus two monthly, and that you may switch probably more from two monthly to monthly if the lesions get closer to the fovea at a rate that was unexpected. Given uh, with wet AMD, your biomarker, which is fluid, is a rapid response. Your biomarker, which is GA expansion, is a slow response. And therefore, it's very difficult to titrate frequency of injection for a very uh, a relatively slow-moving disease. And I think we'll be returning to fixed dosing um, with this disease. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Very insightful. Edna, you early on touched upon the fact that there's obviously no exclusive dichotomy between the atrophic and the neovascular manifestation of the disease. It may be in the same eye. So, uh, you know the data extremely well from Derby and Oaks, and there was obviously a higher incidence of exudative lesions in the treated eyes versus SHEM. It was relatively small, but how would you deal with that? How would you manage patients who have both phenotypes in the same eye? So what I think it's uh, important to mention that in the Oaks and Derby trial, the treated eye, so the study eye, was uh, not allowed to have had a history of exudative uh, AMD. But in the fellow eye, it uh, would have been possible. It would not have been an exclusion criteria if the fellow eye has had any um, anti-VGF treatment or any history of uh, exudation. And as we know, um, there is always a high similarity between two eyes. So we probably have had, let's say, a, a high rate of, of patients when they have an, an uh, let's say, an ex exudation in, in the fellow eye that they have a higher risk, even in the natural course without any treatment, uh, to develop uh, exudative AMD. So there was a difference um, if patients were treated monthly or every other month. So in the every other month um, group, uh, there was a incidence of 
6.7% of getting macular ne uh, neovascularization. And in the monthly group, there was 12.2%. Uh, and when we compare that to Shan, this is almost a four times higher in incidence in the Shan group. There was a 3.1 incidence of macular neovascularization. But the question is, if this is really like an issue that we should say we should not treat uh, these patients who has a, a geographic atrophy. I mean, we have an excellent uh, treatment for neovascular AMD. We know that when we treat very early, um, that we have an excellent outcome. So, of course, we need to be very cautious. We need to be very attentive to actually diagnose uh, this new onset of um, macular neovascularization early in, in, in the course of the disease. But I don't think this should be um, such a high concern um, that we should not use the treatment because it's just like either this treatment or the natural course, uh, which you know, uh, they, they will lose uh, vision. And then there is also the question, I mean, from, from, the, from the data so far, we don't know the, the topographic location of this uh, macular neovascularization. So were they topographically linked to the area of the geographic atrophy or of the macular atrophy? And when we, when we actually think about uh, our uh, data from, let's say, from the clinical uh, uh, data, we sometimes even think about if, let's say, non-exudative type 1 macular neovascularization or so-called quiescent macular neovascularization could be even protective for further progression of geographic atrophy. So as long as there is no exudation, as long as we just have what we would call a double layer sign in OCT, we need to be very attentive. As I already said, we need to diagnose this lesion very early. But then I think uh, we can actually address, address this uh, issue because we have potent agents to treat uh, neovascular AMD. Would it be a an, an, an problem for a patient who needs, let's say, both treatment, who needs uh, complement inhibition, but then also additional treatment for the neovascular component? I don't think so, that this would be an, an, an issue for, uh, for the patient. Thank you, Sandrine. So combined treatment, you see doable and patients could be managed for both pathways involved in, in their disease. Thank you so much. And we already come to, to the end of the Uretina podcast on the complement inhibitor trial derby in Oaks. And maybe one final question to both of you. First to, to Adnan, how does it affect your view on the complement inhibition strategy when you hear about the also recently published data on Avanzi Captat Pegol, the C5 inhibitor? I think this is incredibly encouraging. It's really very much underlines that the uh, original GWAS findings associating the complement pathway 
in age-related macular generation is finely born fruit. Most other GWAS studies have not ever found an, a therapeutic. This has. And now having two studies showing efficacy is incredibly encouraging. And um, I'm sure this will start uh, making an impact in blindness in the medium term. And I'm sure uh, this will spur further developments in this area in the future. Thank you very much, Adnan. Final question to you, Sandrine. Uh, so along that story on complement inhibition, and we touched upon the frequency of, of injection, obviously not by far not close to approval, but there are gene therapy approaches to clinical studies already running. How would you see looking in the in the future? How would gene therapy affecting the complement system, for example, as GT005 does upregulating CFI in the retina, thereby winding down the complement system activity? How do you see this uh, silver lining at the horizon? That's an excellent uh, that's an excellent question. I still think that uh, gene therapy is uh, is still further away because uh, AMD is a, is a, a multifactorial disease involving many genes. I'm not sure if like this approach uh, might be the uh, the better solution, but I think it's just good to see that there are many different uh, approaches trying to target. And, and huge unmet uh, need uh, for the patients. And we see the first uh, light uh, after the tunnel, but I, I'm sure there is uh, still uh, a lot of uh, room for actually even having a better treatment. As we started in the anti-VGF era, and we think about Macugen, that was the first uh, uh, treatment approved. Uh, and what we have nowadays and, and the abilities to treat, um, I hope that will be the, the same uh, evolution for the treatment of uh, geographic atrophy. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sandrine and Adnan, and also to Jonathan for joining in from Zurich, London, and from Dublin. It was really very insightful and helpful understanding the data just recently announced also at the Euretina meeting in Hamburg. Thank you so much. Have a nice day, everybody. Well, thank you so much, Frank, Adnan and Sadrine. And uh, it says something about the dedication of our faculty that we are recording this podcast at 9 p.m. on a Thursday night, folks. That is dedication for you. We'll be back in two weeks with more expert insight from thought leaders in retina. But for now, I'm Jonathan McRae. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.